I like math. I loved the concepts of math, but I hated doing math drill. I remember when I was in, oh, maybe third grade. No, not even in third grade. I, I had this math drill game, and I had to, it's all these math problems, and I had to put down the answers for the multiplication tables, and I had to hold my breath and put them all down while I held my breath. Oh, I hated that. But I liked, I liked math. And I remember when I was, I was 12 years old. Now, my dad was a teacher at the academy, and, uh, of course, Cindy, I'm telling you stories that you already know. But uh, he taught at the academy, and I went over to visit my dad one day at his office. And the math teacher was there. His name was Marvin Thorman. You remember the Thormans. And he was there with his computer. And he had, I think he even had it up on the projector screen. He had written a program to do math. But this was, a, this was the wildest program I'd ever seen. Now, I was fascinated. I was always fascinated by computers. But I saw this program, and I was putting up this picture on the screen. It was graphing a mathematical formula. It was just doing one line, and then it'd do another line. Now, this was back in the days. I mean, people hadn't heard of Facebook, okay? Google, we'd never heard of Google. I mean, just to have a picture on a computer screen was something pretty amazing. So it was putting up this design, this pattern on the computer screen, and I was like, wow, I have never seen anything. And then he did something that made me even more amazed. He took and he zoomed in on that picture, and it made another picture, and he could keep on going and going and going down into that. He called it a fractal. And I was like, what in the world? This is the most amazing thing that I have ever seen. Now, when I was 13, I asked my dad, Dad, teach me how to program computers. I want to know how to do this. I want to make, know how to make the instructions that make these computers work and do all these amazing things. So I did. He, he taught me the basics of computer programming, and he gave, showed me a few examples, and he gave me a college textbook. I was 13. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he gave me a college textbook, and I looked in the front. I couldn't understand any of it. So I went to the back, and they had a bunch of examples. So I figured out. I typed in some of the examples. Oh, that's how it works. So I figured it out. And so I was, I was learning how to program when I was 13 years old. And I, I loved doing mathematical experiments on the computer. It was a whole lot more fun than actually doing multiplication tables and math drill. <laughs> so I did all these mathematical experiments. Now, another thing that I was always... I always loved as a kid, and still do, I love music. And mom would teach me piano lessons, and I, I wish to this day that I had actually paid attention and that not just like complained every time she made me practice the piano. So listen, because if, you're, if your mom tells you to practice, practice, you ever, does she ever tell you to practice your math or practice your piano or something like that? Yeah, okay, pay attention. You'll, wish, you'll, you'll be glad later. They'll thank me in 20 years, okay? Remember. But... I, I never liked to practice that much, but I was fascinated by the music theory. So, you know, and I was always fascinated by science. And you know that sound travels through the air in waves, right? So the, the different notes or waves at different lengths or different frequencies. So I, I did a computer program. I didn't even understand all the math, but I made the, this computer program to try to figure out the math and calculate the different frequencies of the notes. And I was amazed to find these different patterns that in, a, in an, an interval, a fourth or a fifth, or, or d- these different... Uh, intervals, you have these beautiful fractions like five-thirds or, or uh, f- three-fourths or these, these different beautiful fractions in... You never, you never thought of fractions as beautiful. Well, I always thought the, the nice round fractions and even improper fractions sometimes, they're beautiful. Better than like, like 67 thirty-eighths or something like that. I mean, that, those, are, those are ugly fractions. But, but nice round fractions, they're beautiful. So... Anyway, I was, I was amazed to see how much order there was 
in these things around us, in music and in nature. Now, a year or so later, my family moved to Kentucky, and we went to the library, and I checked out a book about fractals, of course, because I was so fascinated by fractals. These books were, not only did they have all these amazing pictures, did that picture go around? But this, this math, it's all this abstract stuff, can be used to make, to, to make a model of the natural world that we have around us. And that's why I picked up this leaf here. Now take a look at this leaf. Now turn it around and look at the back of that leaf. Now, there's a problem that every leaf has to solve. The nutrients come up from the ground, right? That the water and all the nutrients, they come up in a stem, up the trunk of the tree and out the branch and into the base of that leaf. Now that leaf has to get the nutrients dumped out to every little part of that leaf. And then that leaf is starting to generate sugars, right? Because of the, the photosynthesis. And it has to get that sugar back out of the leaf down into the tree where it can nourish the rest of the tree. Well, how does it do that? Well, it, it uses a b- pattern of branching little little channels, little capillaries that go up the stem and out the littler stem and out the littler stem. So it's like these lines are going out and out. That's where the water goes. And look at the pattern of those lines. That pattern is what we call a fractal. It is a geometric shape that repeats itself over and over and over again. So I was so amazed by this. I wrote computer software to generate these these fractals. And now, let me give you another example. If you take, if you go out here to the end of the road here, past the bathrooms, and walk down a little path, there's an overlook. You can see the lake, Lake Cumberland. Now, if you go up in a helicopter and go up maybe, maybe a few thousand feet up in the air, you could look down and you could see a big part of the lake. And you could see these big channels going up and branching off into smaller channels and branching off into smaller channels and branching off into, until, until pretty soon it's like this, this big Frankenstein monster reaching out arms everywhere. And it's, it's a really a beautiful lake. But you, you think about it, are there any similarities to the branching arms of the lake and the branching capillaries in the leaf? Well, you, the, uh, this study of fractals always <coughs> fascinated me because in it I was discovering a beautiful order in nature, an order that I had never seen before. Now, okay, I asked you all, who, who, which of you like math? You, you raised your hand? Okay, I, okay. And, and my, my mom raised her hand. Okay, I'm going to start off, I'm going to have an activity for you all to do. Okay, so listen to me carefully. I'm going to start off with someone who didn't raise their hand that they like math because it's going to start off easy and it's going to get harder. So by the time it gets around to you, it's going to get a little bit harder. All right? So here's the activity. I'm going to give you a number. I'm going to give you two a number. And then I want you to listen carefully to the last two people that say the number. And once you add those two numbers together. Okay? So let's start off. One, one. Okay? I gave you those two numbers. Now, it's one plus one. Two. two. Okay. One plus two is? Three. Okay. Two plus three is? Five. Okay. Five. Good job. Okay. Well, now what's the next one? Five plus three is? Eight. Eight. Okay. Eight plus five is? Thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. So, okay. Now it's getting harder. Eight plus thirteen. <laughs> Twenty-one. Okay. What's, th- what's, what's 21 plus, plus 13? <laughs> okay, 34. We got 34. Okay, now it's getting harder. 
We won't go all the way around the circle, I don't think. What's, what's 34 plus 21? 55. Okay, 55 and 34. 89. 89. Okay, 89 and 55. Esther, we'll stop with you. 144. All right. Now, what is this sequence of numbers? What's the point of all of these numbers? It's a bunch of, a bunch of math, okay? Someone, someone said it. How you know it. You know it. So, Johanna, tell me, what is so special about Fibonacci numbers? All right, I'll tell you. Okay, read off some of those numbers. You got one, one, two, three, five, three, five eight, thirteen. Okay, okay. Three, five, and eight. How many petals are on a violet? Five. Five petals? Have you seen flowers with three petals? Have you seen a lot of the little plants around here? have three leaves, little groups of three leaves. You know that the... What's that? Most of the clovers. The clovers? Yeah, you've, you've heard of like a, a four-leaf clover. A four-leaf of clover is very rare because clovers have three leaves. Look at a, a, a um, maple leaf. There's a maple leaf. How many little lobes does that maple leaf have? Five. So you see all around in nature, you see the flowers, the leaves, the different plants that grow... Their, their divisions come in sequences of Fibonacci numbers. Now, I picked this one up, and I counted the little... Oh, it's kind of wilting now. I counted the little florets in the head, the little head of the little miniature clover. There's 13. I counted the seeds in the seed pod. There's 13. I counted one uh, yesterday. There was also 13. Do you know the plants can count? That's pretty amazing. Did you know that the angle of the... Petals on a plant are all related by Fibonacci numbers, by the ratio of those Fibonacci numbers, which we call the golden ratio. As you know, if you count the, the spirals in a cauliflower or a pine cone, that all of those spirals are all, you count one way, there might be 13, you count the other way and it'll be an adjacent Fibonacci number, either 13 or 21 or 8 and 13. Plants can count. That's pretty amazing. Even the DNA in your body, the, if you look at the ratio of the width to the height of one turn of that DNA, the ratio is what we call that golden ratio, which comes from the Fibonacci numbers. You know, in the, in the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place, how long is it? Who knows? It's, Two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits. That is the same as three and five. Okay? Three by five. What were those two numbers? Three, one, one, two, three, and five. The golden ratio is used in the Ark of the Covenant. It's also used in the Altar of Sacrifice. It's also used in Noah's Ark. If you look at the end of the Ark, it's the golden ratio on the end of the Ark. Isn't it amazing that we find these numbers over and over and over again? Now, there's a lot of people who will come to a place like this, and they'll look around and they'll say, wasn't this an incredible accident that all of this beauty just showed up here? You know, all of these birds, all of these trees, all of the life, even us, 
We all must have descended from a common ancestor because we have so much in common. We see all these numbers showing up in all these different types of plants. There must have been some great common ancestor. A pool of slime millions and millions of years ago. This started morphing and mutating until now we have all of the diversity that we see here. Now I tell you, on the, on the face of it, that idea is ludicrous. And if you look into it a little bit more deeply, it becomes even more ludicrous than it seems on its face. Now, you got to have faith to believe that. Now, I will tell you, and you might be surprised, that I believe in evolution. I believe in evolution. Now, I'm not an evolutionist, but I believe in evolution. Evolution is an incredible process that allows organisms over many generations to adapt to a changing environment. Evolution is an excellent example of the beautiful design we see in God's creation. Now, I tell you, I went on from learning to program fractal programs to going on to becoming a software engineer, a computer programmer. And I've spent many years doing computer programming. I've done small projects. I've done some big projects that took years and years and years to write. I tell you, I've never seen a good piece of software come together by accident. <laughs> Programmers would like you to think that these little devices you keep in your pocket are really simple. They're just slick and magical, and you pull them out, and you slide your finger, and you can do all kinds of crazy and wonderful things. It's not. It is an illusion. It is an illusion of a beautiful and simple device that is so incredibly complex that no one person could understand all of the workings of that device. And I can assure you that the software that runs on your computer or your smartphone didn't happen by random chance. We talk about software evolving. We use terms, we as programmers, terms of evolutionary processes. But I can tell you that behind that veneer, behind that, that seeming appearance of evolution, is a whole lot of money and hard, hard work to make those programs do what you intend for them to do. And you know what happens when you randomly change something in a computer program? It just stops working. It crashes. It bombs. It loses all of your documents or all the files on your computer. It does not improve. I have never once, with only maybe one or two exceptions, seen some random change in a computer program do anything that I wanted it to do. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. And you're laughing now because you know what I mean. Now, I'm not an expert in biology, but I do understand some of the processes that science has discovered and how cells reproduce. And sometimes when the cell reproduces, there's what we call a mutation. A mutation is another fancy word for a random change. It got corrupted somewhere along the line when it was, when it was mutating. Now, most of the time, 99% of the time, either one of two things will happen. Either the mutation is in some part of the DNA that, that really isn't critical to that particular cell's function. And so it goes along and doesn't harm anything. Or if it is part of the critical function of the cell, the cell will simply die. It will cease to exist or the rest of the immune system of the organism will, will kill it because it's not a proper cell. Okay. Once in a very, very, very great while, a mutation will show up that, and this is what evolutionists will tell you, once in a great, great while, the mutation will show up that actually is somewhat beneficial. There's mutations, for example, albinism, okay? That's, a, that's where um, 
your your body or the organism doesn't produce enough pigment, right? And so your your eyes are red and your skin is really really white and your your hair is maybe just a very light blonde. And you know you can look at some and there's some populations of animals where the albinism has been selected for because or at least not selected too much against because it doesn't hurt them and perhaps maybe helps them. But it's a mutation. It's a it's a genetic um, problem. Okay. This mechanism can explain some of the variety that we see in the in the animals and the plants and the things that we have around us. But it cannot explain the different kinds of organisms that we see. Take for example, if you go down here to the to the water, you might see a little pool and you might see some tadpoles. Now what are tadpoles? Tadpoles are baby frogs, right? The frog lays an egg and it hatches out and comes into a tadpole. Now you might also see, if it's a little bit bigger body of water, you'll see close to the shore, you'll see the tadpoles, and then a little bit further out, you'll see the little minnows swimming around. Now what are minnows? Minnows are fishes, right? So a tadpole and a fish might look a lot alike. So you might think, well, it'd be pretty easy for a tadpole to switch over and become a fish. Yeah, it'd be pretty easy, wouldn't it? Except that, I mean, they look a little bit like fish. But I have never seen a tadpole become a fish. I've seen plenty of tadpoles turn into frogs. But I've never seen a tadpole turn into a fish. Because, see, a tadpole, it has DNA inside of it. And that DNA instructions say, you are a frog. And as it grows, it loses its tail and it grows some legs and it becomes a frog. But there's no instructions for that tadpole to grow a bone. It just doesn't have the instructions to make a bone. And I don't care if you zap that tadpole for a million years. It might die, but it's never going to turn into a minnow or a dog or a cat or anything else because it's a tadpole. It, the, as a software engineer, the idea of evolution producing new information is utterly ludicrous, utterly illogical. Everywhere we look, we see fingerprints of design. We see the evidence of a designer who puts everything in its place according to his master plan. Scientists look at a place like this and we call this an ecosystem. It's not just one plant, not just one animal, but hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of different species and varieties of plants and animals and fungi and different organisms all working together. It's like a great, a great bridge that's been engineered across like the, the Golden Gate Bridge in California, or some of these great bridges that we see here in this part of the country. Now, have you ever walked across a natural bridge? I have. Have you ever walked across a bridge that just happened there? You see a, a tree go out in the woods, and a tree falls down, it falls across a creek, and there's a, it makes a bridge. That's a bridge that just happened. Now, I could try to tell you that, you know, this great big tree grew up along the coast of California, and it had these limbs that were just the right place. And when it crashed down and fell over, it became the Golden Gate Bridge. And how many of you will believe me? That's, that's what scientists are trying to tell you when they try to tell you that everything you see came about as a result of happenstance. Now, you may have heard of a lawsuit recently. And I follow this stuff because I'm into computer technology. A lawsuit between two big computer companies, Oracle and Google. Now, the, Oracle is suing Google for billions of dollars, not millions, but billions of dollars over copyright infringement. 
It comes down to one of the big keys that they're suing over. Came down to a function. You know how, do you know how much code goes into the Android operating system? About 12 million lines of code. That's enough. If you printed it out on paper and laid it end to end, it would go from here to the other side of Whitley City. <laughs> laid it out along the road. 12 million lines of code. Do you know how much code it turned out that Google had inadvertently copied from Oracle? Nine lines. Nine lines of code, and it was an elementary function called range check that any first-year computer student would probably write as their first programming exercise. And they're suing for billions of dollars because they proved that that nine line, one programmer somehow copied nine lines of code from Oracle's stuff over into Google's stuff. Now, if someone can sue for billions of dollars over nine lines of code, tell me how, pray tell, can those same kind of people, intelligent, apparently intelligent people, believe that all this life around here came into existence by pure accident? How would that hold up in court if the copyright holder of that DNA showed up and said, I own this DNA. It's my intellectual property. How do you say that it just showed up by chance? Do you know that in your body, in these strands of DNA, these little bridges that go across, there are three billion ladders. There are three billion bases in your genome and all the chromosomes that make up your body. Now, I said there's 12 million lines of code. That's 3 billion. That's enough to go from here to several states away, printed out on paper like this. I'm going to take a little leap here. Now, I've heard a lot of people who make this argument, this argument for the existence of God, for this intelligent design and, and good Christian people, and I, of course, I'm a Christian, and I believe all of us here are Christians, but there's, there's an argument that we make. We make an argument for intelligent design up to a point, and we say, well, the only other logical conclusion is to conclude that the God of the Christian Bible is the only other alternative. It's not. It is not. And any logical thinking person will know that once you establish intelligent design, that you have really no answers at that point. But I submit to you, by, by looking at evolution and realizing that the, the proposition of evolution is preposterous, we bring it into the same field, the same realm as the Christian Bible or the, the stories of many other religious beliefs, okay? And so what I want to do today is to just simply explore the story that the Bible tells. The story of creation. And to understand from the story of creation how this makes sense in the context of what we see today. We open to Genesis and we see how God created a world in six days. And on the seventh day he rested. But in Genesis 3, we find another supernatural being who set at work in God's creation as a fiend to destroy and disrupt God's creation. We have to be careful when we look at creation to distinguish between what 
part of it God created and what parts of it the devil messed up. I've titled my message today, A God of Small Things. How do you explain the fact that everywhere we look, we see the hallmarks of design? We see the fingerprints of God. Well, you might say, evolution does have a point because it looks like all these different organisms are all related to each other. We see cats and dogs, and they all have two eyes, and they have hair, and they have... They have four limbs, and they must be related to each other. They must have some common ancestor somewhere. Well, that's one logical explanation, but another logical explanation is this. Possibly they had a common designer. As a software engineer, when I build a good project, I don't just start from scratch and try to build all the pieces. A lot of times I'll pull together pieces from a lot of different places and reuse them over and over. The same thing can happen in creation. Just because God created the world supernaturally doesn't mean he couldn't reuse the same structures over and over in creating different kinds of animals and plants and so on. The prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of God. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he looked up and he saw God riding in the heavens in a magnificent chariot. And underneath that chariot were wheels. Wheels turning in the midst of a wheel. Think about the universe. Have you ever looked through a telescope? Have you ever gone out on a dark night and looked up in the heavens? And you can see not just the Milky Way galaxy, but if you look close enough, you can see hundreds, thousands, millions of other galaxies. Like a spinning wheel turning in outer space, hundreds of light years across. If you look at our sun and the orbit of our planets... It's you can imagine the orbits as being a great wheel. Look at the earth, just a spinning ball, a wheel. And if you look at the very smallest particle that we know about, the atom and the subatomic particles that make up that atom, they're spinning, orbiting, just like the solar system, like a little microscopic wheel. Do you think today, my friends, I want to ask you, do you think that God cares about little things? If God could have made the solar systems and galaxies out there, why would he have cared to make something as intricate and small as a little leaf? Look at everything that you see out here. No matter how closely you look, how deep you dive, down into the cellular, down to the molecular level, you see order and beauty, the fingerprints of a designer. Do you think God cares about little things? Yes. I went, I'll tell you a story. Just before I went overseas to Africa, uh, Christina and I, we were, we were good friends. We were talking. We weren't really in a, officially in a relationship, but I was helping her to start a ministry and we put together a website and I was hosting it on a computer, an old computer that a friend gave to me. And just before I left for Africa, that computer died. It went off, and it would not come on. Now, I know how to work on computers. I know how to take them apart and put them together and fix them. And Tim, was it you that was saying praying is about the last thing we do sometimes? Well, that was the last thing I did. I I took it apart. I put it together. I tried this. I tested that. And nothing I did could make it work. And finally, I knelt down on my knees. I was already on my knees on the floor trying to fix this computer. But I knelt down on my knees next to that computer, and I prayed. 
And I said, God, I know this computer is a little thing. You're holding up the worlds in your hands. This computer is a little thing. And it really wouldn't bother me if it never worked again. But I really would like this computer to work. And you know what? I opened my eyes and I turned on the switch and that computer came on and that computer never went off. I was in Africa for almost a year and the whole time I was in Africa, that computer was running and I could connect to that computer and I could put up my pictures for all of my friends to see on that, on that server and, my, and Christina's website ran on that server. Does God care about little things? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What do we have to worry about? Aren't we more valuable than lilies? And that verse I shared with you, Charlotte, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Look around and see how much God loves you. Read his word and learn what he has done for you. And when we recognize what he's done in sending his own son of all the billions of worlds and the billions of galaxies to send his son right here to care about this little world, this little insignificant world, to save little insignificant you and me. What else can we do but to say thank you? Say thank you, Lord, for being the God who cares about small things. How can we repay him? How can we say thank you enough? How can we start? I suggest, my friend, we start by doing only the very smallest thing. Start with the work that lies nearest. Luke 16.10 says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. Start by simply saying, yes. Jesus, thank you. Let us pray. Loving Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you have done. And though that you are the great God of the universe, and yet in the smallest atom, we see your love towards us. Help us each day to understand more of your love, that though you are a God of big things, you are, most importantly, a God of little things too. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.